Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Before we begin today, Joe, we wanted to talk about Politicon, the annual bipartisan unconventional political convention, which will be held this year in Nashville, Tennessee, on October 26th and 27th. If you're not familiar with Politicon, the goal is to bring Democrats, Republicans, and people of all political stripes together to talk about politics in a smart and, most importantly, entertaining way. And more importantly, you and I are going to be there to record a live episode of Words Matter from Politicon in Nashville. Yeah, and I think they are calling it the Coachella of politics. <laughs> um, I may be a little too old for that, but I think our listeners are not going to want to miss uh, Words Matter from Politicon. And with that, once again, Joe and I are honored to be joined today by Margaret Sullivan. Margaret is the media columnist for The Washington Post. And before that, Margaret served as the fifth public editor of The New York Times. Margaret began her career in journalism in upstate New York with her hometown newspaper, The Buffalo News. Margaret Sullivan, welcome back to Words Matter. Thank you so much. Great to be here again. So we want to jump right off and talk about how you have described Trump's impeachment strategy. You've called it, quote, counterpunch, confuse and con. But you say it depends on the media. So explain what you mean by that and how it's working so far. Well, you know, this is how he's functioned all along is this is straight out of Roy Cohn, you know, learned at the knee of the eventually disbarred and disgraced lawyer to the stars and the mob that you don't ever admit wrongdoing. You always punch back. You never apologize. You're always on the attack. And that has been Trump's way all along. And now that the stakes are very high with this potential impeachment, I'd say he's He's revving that up even more. And then he likes to confuse with deflecting the crazy tweet, whatever it may be. And I never am quite sure whether this is a plan on his part or more intuitive. I suspect it's more it's more intuitive. And then to put a lot of information out there that's actually disinformation, that's the con part of it, is to, I mean, we know he lies and he's not tethered to the truth, so he'll say whatever. And we've seen that happen with his attention to Joe Biden and Biden's son, Hunter, that he's really spreading. It's more than un- unsubstantiated, as the media likes to say. It's actually just straight up false. So those are the those are the elements that we've seen all along, but I think we're seeing them at a very intense level now. Right. So the Russia interference scandal was really about the 2016 election and this Ukraine story and the Biden issue is looking forward to the 2020 election. And as far as journalists and journalism is concerned, is this a test of how much we've learned about the mistakes since 2016? Yes, I think it is a test. I'm not sure we're going to pass the test all that well. It's very hard to talk about the media. What are we actually talking about? The New York Times or Breitbart, you know. Right. Um, But the mainstream media and sort of elite media, big media, if you will, is very just their DNA is about both sides. Tell this side, tell the other side. And you, the reader, the viewer, you're on your own. We're going to tell you these things because we're so invested in being fair. 
But that actually doesn't work that well in Trump world because he's putting so much stuff out there. So if you just say, well, he said this and there's a bunch of Democratic uh, lawmakers who say that, the reader, the viewer is really not in a good spot. So we have to do more. We have to do more fact checking. We have to do more helping. So I want to talk about one of your more recent columns in this vein. In the first round of the Sunday shows after Speaker Pelosi announced the impeachment inquiry, we saw some hard-hitting interviews by Scott Pelley of 60 Minutes, Jake Tapper of CNN, and Chris Wallace of Fox News. And you wrote, quote, good to see and not nearly enough. And you went on to say, quote, with the stakes so high, the media has to step up more than ever before to help news consumers, American citizens, figure out where they stand. That's going to be increasingly challenging over the next weeks and months. That public opinion be based on facts, not weaponized falsehoods, is also the most crucial work the media can do. So talking about weaponized falsehoods, which we've seen increasingly every week, it seems like, how can journalists rise to this challenge and at least attempt to do better now? So on the live TV interviews, and and I think there's a question, by the way, of whether live TV interviews of some of these characters is really a good idea. We're going to ask about that, too. (laughs) Okay, well, we can get back to that. But I think if they choose to take, for example, a Stephen Miller live, there has to be incredible preparation and willingness to sort of get in the ring and push back really hard. That's what I was sort of praising, that I'm seeing a lot more of that. And Chuck Todd over the weekend, too. They're all doing it much, much more. And that's where I think we actually have learned something. So that's heartening. But it's not enough because there's so much out there that's really wrong that I think, in, you know, we do have to rethink some of the ways we actually do business. And how we teach it. My class on Journalism 101 when I majored in college and broadcast news was balanced approach. Exactly what you said. Tell the story of both sides and let the reader decide. But maybe we need to rethink how we teach that. Right. I always think that if instead of talking about objectivity or both sides-ism or neutrality, I think if you think about fairness, you you get a little bit further. And critical that, thinking. Yeah, about critical what that means. thinking, fairness. What if on the subject of climate change, we were still taking it down the middle or vaccines? You know, well, there's a group of people who think this and there's a group of people who think that. And, you know, we're not going to really express our opinion when the science is all on one side of it. And I think there are parallels in this political world as well. Some things are just not true. So, Margaret, I think you were, you're right to point out that it's hard to talk about the media as a monolithic institution. So I want to drill down on some of the some of the more prominent media outlets and get your opinion. I want to first talk about Fox News. Broadly, what do you think having an organization like Fox News, what's the impact of that on the political discourse, on on how government runs uh, and, and, and specifically how Trump is able to use that to his advantage? Well, Fox News is a huge, huge advantage for Trump, even though he likes to criticize it. And they're not the network they used to be. But then he goes on to praise different people. Fox News is incredibly important to him and may end up being the difference, the crucial difference between what happened in Watergate and what happens now, because there was no Fox News in the early 1970s. And there was, you know, as we all know, there were local newspapers and big newspapers and three TV networks. And I guess Walter Cronkite was still kicking around then. We all had a shared basis in facts. Fox is an outlier there. And even though they're 
original mantra was fair and balanced, that's Orwellian in that it is not fair and balanced. It's actually pretty close to state TV um, with a few exceptions. It's a propaganda outlet a lot of the time. And the primetime guys like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson are really extreme. I mean, if you do sit down and watch it, it's absolutely bizarre. It's through the looking glass. So I think it was a Monmouth poll that came out about a week ago that showed that 40 percent of Republicans in the country did not believe the president had made a call to the president of Ukraine. Yeah. Now, this is something the president has freely admitted to. <laughs> we've this seen is the rough transcript. We've seen the rough transcript. Right. There's been an impeachment inquiry open. What can other journalists do, if anything, to counteract the fact that there is a large swath of America that only gets their news from one kind of source, Fox News, Breitbart, mm-hmm. uh, Infowars, Drudge, wherever it is in that food chain. Drudge seems to have flipped, by the a way. A little bit, yeah. But is there anything that journalists can do to counteract that? Or has this just become a structural part of our democracy now? You know, I'm not sure we can really set out to do too much about that. And I always come back to, you know, I have the greatest respect, and this is not sucking up to my boss, but just straight up respect for Marty Barron, who's the executive editor of The Washington Post. And his thing is, do the work. And we're not at war with the administration. We're doing our work. and We're doing it aggressively. It's not really our job to try to confront the problem of Fox News. Although I will say, I've written about it a lot. Other news organizations have delved into what Fox is. So to the extent that we can educate people about it, that's good. But we probably are preaching to the choir to some extent. So let me ask you to put your hat back on as if you were still the public editor at the New York Times. Okay. Uh, that's a, a, another institution I think that's really interesting to look at. And I'll start by saying that I think without the New York Times and some of their investigative reporters and some of their political reporters, we wouldn't be where we are. They have revealed significant parts of the story along with uh, strong competition from The Washington Post and The Wall Street Journal and others. Have really. I would put it the other way. I would say the Times has given the Post some strong competition. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'll give you your chance to take a shot at the Times here with <laughs> with my questions, but but uh, you know, in some ways, this is like a return of the golden age of journalism because you really do have this feeling at between seven and ten p.m. that something's about to drop. You just don't know whether it's coming from the Post or it's going to come from the Times. But having said that. There's just some things about, and I'm going to use the Times just because you had, you looked at it through the public editor lens. Let's start with the coverage of Biden and Hunter. You, I think you alluded to this at the top, but to me, there's a huge difference between saying something is false and baseless and saying something's an unproven charge. You read that on a regular basis now. Why is that? Why, why can't the editor there tell their reporters Say this is a baseless charge. It's untrue. It's a smear. It's rather than unproven charges. Right. So this is a little bit like the discussion about whether Trump should be called a liar or or whether that word should be used lie. We try to be very careful because you don't want to go too far and you don't want to rev up the sort of emotionalism of what's going on. And so I think the Times and, and other big news organizations, NPR, and I think the Post probably does it too, and the Wall Street Journal, you know, you you don't take it right to the line of what might be acceptable. You step back just a little bit. 
The Times gets a lot of criticism because it is singular in its influence, in its size, in its history. It is one of a kind. It's a very harsh spotlight on The Times. And that doesn't mean they don't do things wrong. But when they do, they tend to get an outsized amount of criticism. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of The Times right now from the left, which is really interesting because for years they've been seen as this liberal outpost, but they're always under fire from everybody. And one of the things I found out as public editor was I put off writing about the complaints about Mideast coverage. I put it off as long as I could because it was a 100 percent no win. You know, you were getting it from every side and you could never, ever possibly make anyone happy with well, it. Well, some of the times when everybody's being critical, it means you've got it exactly right. But, but it's, not, it's no, up, and yeah. I'm not a believer yeah. in that. Yeah. I, I don't think that's true. Sometimes it means you're getting it wrong, right. 100% wrong, you know, yeah. but I just, what I'm saying is there's a very, there's a particularly harsh spotlight on the Times. Let me go with another example from the, the Times. Um, last week, the president held a rally in Minneapolis and it was truly bizarre. He, as a lot of the reports came in, He had a pretend conversation between two FBI agents who were um, lovers and faked an orgasm with uh, a podium with the presidential seal on it. Mm -hmm. Went after Somalis, went after Bruce Springsteen. uh, And Beyonce. And Beyonce in the same sentence. And it was crazy. If you had just dropped in from another planet, you would have thought someone was having a bad drug Mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. And the Times, and I'm picking on the Times for a reason, described the, I think in their lead, that the president was on the offense tonight. What is it about the traditions of journalism that keeps reporters from saying the president was out of his fucking mind yeah. last night in right. Minneapolis? You know? Yeah, well, you know, you you really, I don't think, can do that in standard news coverage. You, <laughs> you might be able to have a, a column, um, an op-ed column that really explores how wacky it is. But, you know, news coverage is by its nature, kind of restrained. And I don't know that we want to turn that on its head. And at the same time, it's and it's also very hard to get this across, just how weird it is. You know, one of the really effective people covering these rallies is Daniel Dale at CNN, who was the Toronto Star's fact checker. Now he's at CNN. And he the, his tweets are really interesting because he takes it sort of sentence by sentence and deconstructs it. But if you're writing a news story off of it, I mean, how do you even get across what's going on? But do the traditional constraints, as you described them, of news coverage, are they serving the public with this president as president? No, not particularly well. I don't think they are because they don't really get to the heart of how bizarre it is. And then they tend to allow for a defense that is given almost equal weight. And so none of that really gets across what's happening. But I don't really know the fix for that other than being more frank, being more transparent, telling people how we operate, some of those things. And the other thing we have to keep in mind here is that people who are reading the New York Times, they're really well-informed as a general rule. It's not like they're going to pick up the paper and say, oh, gosh, I didn't realize how wacky he's acting. We all know this at at this point. But I agree that this restrained and kind of softened language with the edges rubbed off of it is not particularly helpful. So you talked about weaponizing information, and I think that's a critical part of understanding what's going on in the entire political discourse. 
I was surprised to see Peter Schweiker on the op-ed page of the Times. And again, we could do the same thing about the Washington Post mm-hmm. and the same thing about the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. particularly about the Journal, given the dichotomy in their news coverage and their ed- editorial. But this is the guy who did Clinton, Clinton Cash, Clinton Cash mm-hmm. which gave a roadmap for Republicans to create a false narrative about Hillary Clinton and bringing Donald Trump into office. What's he doing on that page? Right. I would not have published that piece, and I don't think it was a good idea to. All these news organizations are trying hard and in various ways to not have only one singular voice that also happens to be the voice of their editorial boards. So they feel an obligation to say, well, we need to have different people. But you don't have to have people who are in the wrong. And I think that's true of Schweitzer. Take a different story. Say you're covering the drug wars in the 1980s or 1990s. Did the op-ed page feel like they needed to have the Colombian cartel's voice no, on the page? No, and I don't think you needed to have Schweitzer either. And why, if Trump is acting in a irresponsible and criminal way, why does his voice need to be there? Well, he's the president, so that's a little different. But Schweitzer is an author and a proven ideologue and, and worse. So, yeah, I, I don't think that should have been there. Okay, the New York Times grilling is over. Back to you. <laughs> I want to talk about one of the weaponized falsehoods that you wrote about last week as well related to the 2020 presidential campaign. And I want to talk about it in two different contexts. But first, it's the, the story about Elizabeth Warren that was printed in the Washington Free Beacon about why she was dismissed many years ago from a teaching job. And the now, headline... Katie, can I interrupt? And I, can, I just went for context here and in full disclosure, the Washington Free Beacon, when I was the press secretary of the White House, handed out their first devil annual Goebbels Award, and I won. So Nice. And I still have the plaque at home. Oh, so anyway. Very good. Okay, well, that's a real honor. Good to know. All right, so the headline of the story in question was, County records contradict Warren's claim she was fired over pregnancy. And your lead was, a news report can be narrowly factual and still plenty unfair. So explain what the story was and how it was unfair, and then we'll get into it. So Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail has used this anecdote about how she was teaching as a young person and she got pregnant and she was shown the door is the phrase she's used a few times. And then she says, I probably would have stayed in teaching and that would have been my career. But instead, I took a different path and it led me to where I am today. You know, it led her into law school. It led her into politics. Okay, so it's kind of part of her campaign trail foundational story, let's say, that she tells. And she tells it a lot. So the Free Beacon, and there have been other publications that have been in on this, go and find the minutes of the Riverdale, New Jersey school board. And hey, they write a story that says, look at this. We've got the minutes that say they actually offered her a chance to, you know, renew her contract or stay longer. And this doesn't jibe with the idea that she was dismissed because she was pregnant. And the story is based on this. This shows that there's a contradiction. It asks her for comment. There is no comment from the campaign. And I don't know the story there. Maybe they didn't have enough time to respond, you know, or maybe they decided who cares about the free beacon. We're not going to respond. We won't justify it with that. At any rate, there's no response. And it looks kind of bad. It really does. Then the next day or sometime after that, CBS does a larger, deeper dive into this and gets an interview with Warren and also does some interviewing with former teachers in the school district who said, you know, you could kind of stay if you were just a few months pregnant and you weren't showing. But the minute you started to show, you know, you were out. And Warren said, yeah, when they renewed the contract, 
or whatever the language was, she was four months pregnant and she wasn't showing. No one knew. This fits with the timeline. So then a couple months later, it's June. She's six months pregnant. She's showing. And the principal calls her in and says, you know, I found somebody else to do your job and best of luck. So I don't think there isn't any contradiction in her story. But that piece in the Free Beacon is immediately picked up and sent out into the sort of conservative ecosystem where Kellyanne Conway is saying she's a liar and the Federalist, which is one more step to the right, at least, it uses the word lie. And I don't think there's a reason to think that she was lying. Right. I mean, this was truly an instance where the lie or the weaponized falsehood, as you put it, made its way all the way around the world or around the Twitter globe or whatever it was before the truth got up and put its shoes on in the morning. And that was the media's fault, really. But again, I think we come back to this thing of what's the media? Are you defining the media as the Free Beacon and the Federalist and Breitbart and Fox News? And by the way, Fox News, since we were talking about this, also decided, well, this was an important enough story that they ought to have a panel about it. And they get Ari Fleischer on and he says, yes, this, you know what, this is a character issue for, for Elizabeth Warren. And it gives them a chance to bring up the whole issue about her Native American heritage or lack thereof or relatively thereof. So it kind of fits in with a pre-existing narrative. Let the record show the restraint I'm showing and not going after Ari or Kellyanne here. Katie, you've got the mic. (laughs) A Gerbil Award again for you, Jeff. So this brings me to another set of questions looking ahead to 2020, what we've learned and how the media is handling coverage of women candidates and the men candidates. And recently, Bernie Sanders suffered a heart attack um, and, and is recovering from that and is back on the campaign trail. But the way that the media handled that and the way that even he handled that and his campaign handled that, I don't think could have fit in the Warren camp or in the Harris camp in the same way and would have played out in the same way publicly. I just wanted to get your thoughts on on how that rollout happened and how we're going into 2020 approaching them the same way. I mean, I think there still is uh, gender discrimination in the way the news media covers candidates. But I will say that I think it's less now than it was four years ago and a lot less than it was eight years ago. So with these debates, for example, and you're seeing multiple women on stage as candidates and then the moderators, too, there's a good mix. It makes a huge difference. So women in the room makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, and also sort of not just one but sort of this right. critical mass. And, you know, I know this from my own career in Buffalo. If I were the only woman in a room full of newspaper executives, it was really hard to represent a point of view. Once you had some other people there, it changes. It just changes the dynamic. So could Warren or Harris have survived the, the news of a, of a heart attack? I don't know. Maybe Maybe not. It's hard to say. But I do feel like we've made some progress. I think that the issues about Warren's likability and electability have a kind of there's a there's an element of misogyny or sexism or gender discrimination there, too. It's really hard to pinpoint. But I think it's like, well, the underlying idea of it is kind of like, well, didn't we kind of try that with Hillary? Because she's a woman and so is Warren. And, you know, they're both like lawyers with Ivy League connections and short blonde hair. So didn't we already do that? When actually I think Hillary is a lot closer to Joe Biden ideologically, but nobody seems to make that connection. They make the connection between her and and Warren. I think using the phrase likability as applied to presidential candidates, particularly the women, is like describing women as shrill. It is a dog whistle for sexism. Yeah, it's true. So 
Looking back a couple of weeks, I think one of the most frightening moments, you know, for me as an observer was the press conference with the president of Finland. Mm. When the president was asked a very direct and not confrontational question but from Jeff Mason of Reuters, and the president lost his cool and started directing Jeff Mason on who he should be asking questions to. And he, he shouted at him, asked that him a question. And it really, I think, got to the core of Trump's authoritarian instincts. But critique Jeff Mason's performance. There's a debate. I, I tweeted that I thought it was a lost opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for Mason could have very calmly, in a way that some of the more high-profile media people couldn't, uh, had said, you know, Mr. President, with all due respect, my job is to ask the questions and it's inappropriate for you to tell me who I should be asking a question of. Mm -hmm. Katie, I think, believes, I think we were debating this beforehand, that he handled it beautifully and showed that he isn't the story. The president's the story. And yeah. if, Katie, if I've got that wrong, correct it's part me. part of my journalism 101. <laughs> there we go. There we go. What do you think? I thought he did really well with it. And I think I'm more with Katie on this. He was very low key. He was extremely polite. But I thought the contrast between him and the president was so strong that it just it really worked for journalism. It worked for Jeff Mason. You know, when he said, here's Trump saying, are you talking to me? You know, which is so rude in that context. And then Mason saying, yes, you know, yes, Mr. President or yes, sir. And when Mason said, well, I actually just wanted to give you a chance to answer the question that I asked of you. And he really stayed with it for three or four efforts. I mean, I think that a regular person uh, watching that, and, and a lot of people did because it was shown and reshown, would say, you know, you can't fault this guy. He's being polite. He's being low key. He's not a grandstander and he's not pushing it. And he should be able to get an answer to his question. So when I was watching that, it brought back very vivid memories of 1973 and 1974 of Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw mm -hmm. more forcefully taking on the president. Mm -hmm. You remember when Nixon said to Dan Rather, are you running for something? And Rather said, no, are you, sir? <laughs> yes. and, and Brokaw had a, a similar moment where in a more Midwestern low-key mm -hmm. way, he put the president in his place. I think we've agreed or I, what I read from your columns is the media needs to be more muscular here. Yes. Was that a moment to be more muscular or is I it? Mean, I mean, yeah. I think I, we just disagree on this, Joe. If Jim Acosta had been asking the question, he would have been stronger right. about it. But Jim gets criticized for grandstanding. And I don't know that that would have played very well in this situation. I thought that Mason stood his ground, was extraordinarily polite, didn't call it undue attention to himself. And in an era when there's so much mistrust of the news media and there's so much uh, willingness to attack and see the worst, I think it was very appropriate. Okay, I concede to the wisdom of <laughs> the, the women. women in the room right. here. And um, let me go back to something you said earlier, and it has to do with who goes on the air, who goes on live. I think we've talked a little bit uh, about the perils of letting the president go on at length on live TV. Talk about that and talk about should Rudy be on TV? The Biden campaign, for instance, sent out a letter saying don't book Rudy. Or uh, if you book him, you got to have a Biden person right there. Yeah. So um, I also wanted to ask about this and I wanted to pull a bit from what you wrote on this exact topic to jump on Joe's question as well, since we both were going the same way. 
You wrote, in some cases, TV shows need to rethink the idea of live interviews with Trump surrogates. Arguably, they're no longer serving the public interest. And in all cases, print and TV interviews, including those on cable news, they need to cut through the obfuscation at every opportunity. So do you think they should be booking Rudy and Kellyanne? I do not think Kellyanne Conway should be interviewed anymore on news shows. She does nothing but lie. That's not quite true, but she lies a lot. It's disqualifying. You know, Rudy is an interesting case because he does do that weaponized disinformation thing, but he also makes news and he's right in the middle of this story. So I can understand the impulse to to interview him, to have him on. He does. Um, he says so much. Yeah, he, he makes says so news. much. Of course, then he changes it the next minute. So I don't know how much it holds up. But if you go back and look at Chris Wallace's interview with Stephen Miller a couple of Sundays ago, Wallace is a great interviewer, and he was not giving up any ground, but it was still just useless because he couldn't get an answer out of Miller. So I don't know how that serves the public. It's a show. It's a shout fest in some cases. I mean, Wallace wasn't shouting, but I just don't think it's all that useful. So I think the idea of taking these people live it shouldn't be knee-jerk to do it. you got to think through it every time. I wouldn't say you can never do live interviews. And, you know, Trump, one of the things that happened in, in 2016 and in 2015 leading up was that he was taken live a lot. His rallies were taken live. His speeches were taken live. And the, the empty podium was taken live. And that was one of the great flaws that happened on cable. So here's a, a question near and dear to my heart. The White House has gone now about 220 days without having a briefing. I, I think it's a loss for our democracy and a lost opportunity for the White House. I guess two questions. One is, how big a deal is that? And then secondly, going to the broader question of coverage, so much of what I think you're saying is that it's voters and citizens' obligation to understand better the nuances that the media can't do everything. You know, again, and I agree, it's not the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN's job to make sure people understand mm. when they're giving them information. What, you know, yeah, what's, no, there what's are the answer some things here? we can do. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the fix to that is a long-term thing. It really is, I mean, it sounds very wonky to say it, but it has to, a lot to do with education. It has a lot to do with, I guess, what used to be called civics education or could be called media literacy. We have to teach young people this is how journalism works. You have to find news sources that you can trust. You have to learn to distinguish. You have to compare and contrast all that stuff. But I think journalists, too, can do things. They can write about it. They can go out and talk in the community about it. They can help to educate people. So there are things we can do, but it's not going to change things overnight. I think there's a real loss to the public and to, honestly, to the White House in not doing the briefings. It's a way to hold public officials, the White House, accountable by having these briefings that are in the public eye in which questions are asked and answered, whether satisfactorily or not. And so it would be a way for the White House to get its message out. But the decision there has been we don't want to get our message out in a filtered way like that. We want to tweet. We want to put out negative ads. And we're going to take our message directly to the people without the gatekeeper of the media. But I do think that it's, um, it is a loss. I'm not someone who would say, oh, they were useless anyway. Who cares? I, I disagree with that idea. I'm going to ask you a monolithic media question. Does the media 
care too much about process. And I'll, here's the example I'll give you, which is one of the things that the Republicans were using as a talking point, which turned into an eight-page letter from the White House counsel, was we refuse to cooperate with this because there hasn't been a vote. That's a process question. And the media picked up on that. Mm -hmm. And every Democrat who goes on TV now is asked, well, why don't you just have a vote? There's nothing in the rules that says they have to have a vote. It's not in the Constitution. It's it's just a process point. Or am I overreacting? Well, to that? no, I think that that's a I think this is the difference between cable news and network news or perhaps a news story. It's like the incrementalness of it. This is a thing that we can sort of deconstruct today. And so it's for the a, next four hours, or for we the can next four hours, you yeah. know, this, this we're going to get some experts on. We're going to talk about this point and pull it apart. I do think that that's not at the heart of the matter. I'm, let me ask a very broad question to wrap up. Looking forward, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the media's ability to meet the challenges? There's this phrase uh, or paraphrases, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So I want to feel optimistic. I, I think there's some reason to think that things have improved somewhat. And I think we've made some progress. And at the same time, at times I'm reading and watching and just sort of throwing up my hands like, well, actually, we're, we haven't learned a thing over the past four years. So I'd say there's there's been some progress and there needs to be a lot more. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. Great to be with you. All right, Joe, it's always good to talk to Margaret. My guess is from now through Election Day, we'll probably have her on every three or four weeks because the media is such a key player. And boy, does she have a keen and incisive point of view about what the media does right and what the media does wrong. Definitely, if we're lucky. All right. So this week, we wanted to find out what's on your mind about what's been going on with the House impeachment inquiry. And there were a couple of things that happened last week that we wanted to get your take on. So first, let's talk about the letter from the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, to House Democratic leaders. Now, despite Article 1, Section 2, Clause 5 of the Constitution giving the House of Representatives the sole power of impeachment, the White House claimed that the inquiry violated precedent and denied President Trump's due process rights. They said that neither he nor the executive branch would willingly provide testimony or documents. Now, I may be the lawyer here, but impeachment is in your realm. It's a political process, quasi-legal at best. What do you make of the political strategy behind the White House counsel's letter? Well, as I tweeted out this week, Pat Cipollone sent a letter from the White House counsel's office that no other White House counsel, I think, in history would have signed. He is now acting like the attorney general is as a personal lawyer to the president as opposed to a lawyer for the presidency. And he's doing uh, what could be very significant damage to, to that office. And he's an anonymous figure so far, but he's, you know, I think he's going to be uh, a figure of historical import because of that. But as a political strategy, what the White House is doing simply is trying to delay this as much as they can, trying to confuse people, to, to quote Margaret Sullivan, you know, confuse, attack, and con or something uh, similar to that. And she's right. It is a strategy that just will put off as long as they can having to comply uh, with the Congress's constitutional right to get this information. And I think a big part of their calculation is they know Congress isn't going to wait. Uh, and they have the sense that if they put this off long enough, Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and the Democrats will move forward with what they already have and impeach the president. 
And the Senate will have to make a decision based on limited information uh, because I don't think the Democrats are going to let this go on open-ended. And what that says to me is they know what they have. And it is much more incriminating and extensive than what we know now. There's a lot of um, comparison naturally between the Clinton impeachment and the Trump impeachment. And there really shouldn't be. Remember, when Clinton was impeached, the investigative part of the process was done. Ken Starr issued a 2,500-page report that left no stone unturned and a few stones that shouldn't have been unturned. But when Congress looked at this, they were not trying to gather facts. They were not trying to get new information. They were just trying to put in the record um, Starr's case and say that it reached the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. And that was a political process. And it, in some ways, it was crazy, but some ways it followed the Constitution. What the Democrats are doing now is very different. The investigation on Ukraine has just begun, and, and that's going to be the focus of impeachment. They don't know. They're not politically trying to lay out a damning case against the president. They're trying to find out how deep and wide this goes. So the White House stonewall strategy and making specious constitutional arguments that George Conway called trash and garbage – and I think we can all understand what that means. I, those are not necessarily legal jargon, is, is just what it is on its face, a political strategy to make sure that the true story and complete story never comes out. We'll see how it goes. I mean, we're, it, will, it will eventually be decided in a court, but it may be decided in a court after the process is done. And that will make a very interesting coda to all of this. Now, because impeachment is a political process, public opinion is absolutely critical here. And last week, according to a Fox News poll, 51 percent of Americans want President Trump impeached and removed from office, while another 4 percent would like to see him impeached and not removed. Now, back during Watergate, it wasn't until late July of 1974 that a majority of Americans supported Richard Nixon's impeachment and removal from office. So how bad are these polls for Donald Trump's prospects of surviving impeachment? These polls are actually really bad for Donald Trump. And I, I was surprised. There was a poll earlier in last week that showed that 58 percent of Americans wanted Trump impeached. And that caught my attention, but did not answer the removed question. This 51 percent, a majority of Americans want him tried, indicted, to use the legal jargon, and then tried and convicted. That is a very, very bad number for Trump because that means it includes a fair number of Republicans and independents. This isn't just a partisan Democratic statement. That was just Democrats. That number would be about 35 percent uh, based on party registration in the country. And probably the most worrisome part for the president and his team is we don't know the whole story yet. This is 51 percent of the country saying we've just seen the top line and we're going to be hearing testimony on a daily basis. Just last Friday, the ambassador uh, to the Ukraine who was removed as part of this scandal was very clear, you know, behind closed doors what she thought. And she and uh, Ambassador Sundland, who will come in this week, hopefully, and the NSC's Russia expert, who will come in, are going to now be filling in the blanks here and building this case. And if I'm sitting in the White House and I have some sense of, you know, how bad it is, and with only a 
small portion of it known to the public, already you've lost half the country. That's really bad. Now, what does it mean? It's really hard to see Republicans uh, who have a difficult choice turning on the president, not because they like him, not because they support him. They don't like him and they don't support him. They believe in themselves and they think that being reelected is the best thing for the country. There was an exchange last week at at the Denver airport with Cory Gardner, the uh, senator from Colorado, who is up for re-election and also the head of the Republican, you know, Senate uh, uh, election campaign committee. And two or three local reporters asked him as politely as you could a very simple question of, is it wrong for a president, not the president, a president to seek um, help to interfere in our elections? And he couldn't answer it. He couldn't answer it because as head of the campaign committee, uh, he couldn't go on record against the president. I'm going to use very highfalutin political jargon here. He looked like a fool. Uh, and he knew he looked like a fool. He's not He's not a dumb guy. He's a smart guy. And you could tell by the look on his face what an untenable position he feels he's in. It's untenable because if he crosses the president, he loses the Trump voter. And he can't win without the Trump voter. If he stays with the president, he loses enough voters that he can't win. But the odds are a little bit better if he has the Trump voters and he just squeaks by. And this is the same calculation that Susan Collins is making, that Joni Ernst is making, Cory Gardner. I'm I'm forgetting the other senators who are up in cycle. But this is this is what this is what they face. So it is hard to imagine the Republicans turning and removing uh, Trump and, and convicting him in the Senate. But we don't know. We, we just don't know what we don't know, which is why the White House is fighting so hard to make sure we never find out. All right. And finally, I want to talk about an event that happened last week. Two associates of President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, were arrested on charges that they schemed to funnel foreign money to U.S. politicians while trying to influence U.S.-Ukraine relations. The two men, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, had been helping Giuliani investigate Joe Biden. They were arrested at Dulles Airport, where they had one-way tickets on a flight out of the country. So, Joe, as this scandal continues to grow, how long will Republicans on Capitol Hill be able to say, nothing to see here? Well, let me take the specific issue. This is really, really problematic for the president because he has validated and vouched for Giuliani all through the process. It is impossible for now. He may try to say he doesn't. Rudy who? I've never met Rudy. But there is there is ample evidence already in the public record that Rudy was running a shadow foreign policy at the direction of the president and that these two gentlemen were Rudy's lieutenants. As some uh, smartass guy on Twitter last night said, well, at least there's no video of Rudy with them and then attach the video of them yucking it up in the Trump hotel. I guess the only thing that would have been better is if it was at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump Jr. Oh, there's a picture of that, too. So th- there you go. But it, 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 it actually brings to life this sort of shady underworld of Russians, Ukrainians who are sympathetic to Russia, Rudy Giuliani. And the president directing this all from the Oval Office, use Mueller as an example. That was really hard for people to engage in a water cooler conversation about. This is easy. This is like, oh, my goodness, there's these two guys who look like Russian mafia types and Rudy Giuliani, who looks like he could be the mob boss. And there's Trump doing all this stuff. And when they attach that to the idea that it's American foreign policy, 
and looking for a foreign country, an enemy of the U.S. to, and when I say enemy, I mean within Ukraine, there are strong elements of pro-Russia that think Ukraine should go back to being part of Russia and the, the old Soviet Union. Uh, and that's, we consider those people our enemy as, as far as our foreign policy doctrine who are attempting to influence our election. It's almost like Trump dying by his own sword because it's colorful and interesting enough. It's a reality show. And this is like the cliffhanger ending that you couldn't have predicted. Rudy and the president may be driving off that cliff like Thelma and Louise. Let me answer the, the, the broader question, though, of and because I think it's a really good one, of how long can the Republicans say there's nothing to see here? I look at these things as a former political operative of the, through the lens of you can generally tell how strong someone's case is by the arguments they use and how quickly they crumble unto themselves. I remember when the debate was raging in in the aftermath of 9-11 about whether we'd launch a military, go to war with Saddam Hussein to remove him because of his weapons of mass destruction, that I, what really flipped in my mind to be someone who was against it was a study that some you know graduate student, I think at like University of Illinois did, and he documented from public records 23 different changing explanations of why we should go to war with Iraq. And that I remember reading that and thinking, that tells me what I need to know, which is they're kind of making it up as they go. And that's what the Republicans are doing now. Bringing it back as, as we finish to, to Margaret, it's a place where I don't know that the media is aggressive enough here, which is they'll just say what the argument is. They know it to be specious if they know the context, and maybe some people don't. And they just allow that argument to be the argument unchallenged. Or they might say some Democrats said something different. When in fact, they know these things to be false. Your journalism 101 class, they they have this sense that, well, we have to be fair and let them say, let them have their say. And the loser is the reader and the viewer because they, they don't know. And that, again, leads to an electorate that is susceptible to the nonsense that comes out of Republicans and comes out of Fox News and all of the other outlets. I was taken by Margaret's pessimism, optimism formula, and I'm going to hold on to that for a little bit. Well, until next week, where I'm sure there'll be plenty more on your mind, but but thanks for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I've saved a little ranting and raving, so, you know. Just a little? Stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.